0: Hello, and welcome to the Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soluschurch.com. And we'll see Jesus give this command. He says this. uh, The the, the scriptures say this in verse 4. And being assembled together with them, it says he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when he had co- when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. It's pretty tough to hear that, not just for the disciples, but any of us, especially as Americans, that would be a hard thing to 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 hear. Uh, we live in a culture that that is driven on knowing as much as possible, and and is pursuing the potential of knowing everything. And here Jesus is like, "There's just some things that are not for you to know." That's kind of tough, but that's what he says to the disciples. And he goes on to say this: He says, "But you, here's what's for you." You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So here's Jesus in that 40-day period here towards the end. He's commanding them to wait for the promise of his Spirit, and let's go back one there, okay? And he, he's, he's instructing them that it's not for them to know all that they're desiring, but here's what's for them. He's encouraging them, they're gonna go and they're gonna wait for the Holy Spirit. Now, verse nine, Mike, I'll take over here, okay? Verse nine says, now when he had spoken these things while they watched, notice this, as he's speaking these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight, now, Jesus has appeared and disappeared and reappeared and disappeared a handful of times already, but this was a disappearance um, unlike any they've experienced before. While he was speaking these things, that's pretty cool. So it's not like he said it and he just whoop, dipped out, but he's like making his tele, you know, teleportation um, departure floating exit while he's preaching. Wouldn't that be cool if I could do that right now? So, like, I just start floating as I'm teaching. I can't do that. But Jesus did that. As he's speaking to his disciples here at the end of those 40 days, he's commanding them to wait for the power of the Spirit, and it says in verse 9 there, while he had spoken these things, while they watched, it says, he was taken up, that's all it tells us, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Notice this. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, as you and I would as well, um, I'm thinking of, was it yesterday, the day before, the blue angels that flew over here in South Florida and uh, our entire family, we got to a parking garage right where the, uh, here in East Boca, where the blue angels were flying right over. And I imagine it's a little bit like that. Uh, You have uh, the disciples looking, but it's not the blue angels, it's two angels. Come on, check it out. Okay, so they're looking steadfastly toward heaven as Jesus floated up, and behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. This is descriptive language to describe what they looked like, two men in white apparel, but these are, uh, they're entertaining angels here. Um, These are angels appearing in white apparel, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Now, it's kind of a, I don't know, an interesting question to ask, you know, like maybe because they just saw Jesus float into heaven, right? Like, why are you gazing? Now, now, the question they're actually asking, it might seem like an interesting question to ask, a foolish question. Why are you gazing at Jesus who just floated away? Um, the same question you might ask someone who's looking at the blue angels, like, why are you looking up into heaven? It's like the blue angels, you know? Um, and this, this word gazing literally means looking longingly, like they've lost something. That's the idea. Why do you stand gazing longingly uh, into heaven? This same Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Uh, The next verse, we don't have it for you here, but verse 12 says that they returned to Jerusalem and they were all there in the upper room with Mary, uh, with all the disciples, and they are there in prayer, and Luke tells us, in worship. So what a significant event here, Uh, so significant that today I want to preach a sermon that I've entitled The Significance of This Event, The Ascension. That's the title of the message today, The Significance of The Ascension. Uh, Let me just pray for us one more time. Lord, would you just empower me right now by this same spirit that you promised to your disciples, that you've promised to all your sons and daughters. Would you pour out your spirit upon me now that I might be able to communicate your heart, your word, and God, would you help me communicate the significance of this event that we just read about? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What an, an incredible moment here! Jesus ascending into heaven, uh, in what is I would say, probably the most underappreciated, underlooked, but one of the most you could even you could even dare to say the most significant event in the life of Jesus. His ascension to the right hand of the Father taken up into a cloud out of the disciples' very sight. It's a significant event, so significant that Luke, as he's writing the book of Acts, he's going to start with this event. like this is the single event that now transitions the church age. In fact, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, where Luke is describing the life and the ministry of Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke is writing as an investigator, investigating This man who claimed to be God, and at the end of Luke's gospel, we have this account. This is at the end of Luke, so his first uh, his first work. At the end of the gospel, Luke says, "Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven." So Luke includes it there. So it ends his first book and it begins his second book. It's so significant that it's the event that overlap uh, that overlaps Luke's two accounts of the ministry of Jesus. One was in his life, and the second, the book of Acts, is his ministry in the church. But this is, again, a major event. Um, you know, it's interesting. We have obviously a holiday where we celebrate Jesus' arrival. This is, an, this is, of course, important, right? God became a man, the incarnation. It's Christmas. We celebrate the death of Jesus, which is Good Friday. Uh, of course, signifying the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We have a whole day devoted to the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. But we don't have a day celebrating in our typical church calendar, the modern church calendar, we don't have a day celebrating the ascension of Jesus. This is a, a largely overlooked and even undervalued event, uh, and I dare I say, misunderstood event in the life of Jesus that we often miss. It's interesting, there is actually in the more traditional high church liturgical church calendar, there is an Ascension Day. It's coming up. If you want to celebrate it with me, you can. It's next Thursday, a week from this Thursday, May 21st, is Ascension Day, 40 days after uh, the resurrection of Jesus. But the reason why that day is on that church calendar is because, again, of its significance. Maybe misunderstood, maybe overlooked, but significant nonetheless. As I said, one of the most, if not the most significant event in the life of Jesus. And I want to talk about why today. What, what, what does the ascension signify? Why is it so significant? What does this event mean? Well, what was happening here as Jesus just dips out and floats away from his disciples, so epic, uh, parted into the heavens, or into heaven rather, that's important, not just into the sky, but into heaven, and what does it mean for us? Like, What are the implications of this event, and why should we reinstitute the celebration of Ascension Day, okay? Uh, so first, uh, a few things. Hey, let's start with this one. Uh, number one, the ascension of Jesus, this event that we just saw, the first thing that it does is it marks the completion of Jesus's earthly mission. First reason why this event was so significant, he, him ascending to the, to the right hand of the Father, him ascending, being parted away from the disciples. This event marked the completion of Jesus's earthly mission mission. We know while Jesus was on earth, it's John chapter 4, where Jesus says uh, this incredible statement. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Uh, Jesus is the greatest example in history of someone who did what they were called to do, and they didn't just do it kind of haphazardly, but they did it with everything they had. So much so that Jesus said, the task that my Father has given me is the very food that consumes me, that I consume and that consumes me. We know that was Jesus' mantra. That's the way that Jesus lived his life, to be faithful to what God had called him to. So faithful to this mission that he would bear a cross, he would suffer for the sins of the world, and he would hang, he would bleed, he would suffer, and he would die. And following that self sacrifice Jesus will say, It is finished to telesi He will declare, I have finished the task that you 've given me, and that 's true that Jesus had finished in a sense the, a part of the task that God had given Jesus. Uh, the biggest part, which is bearing the sins of the world. And we know that. We know that, that Jesus has paid for the sins, of you, uh, the sins of the world. Your sins and my sins have been paid for in full. Amen? That's good news to know that Jesus finished the work of the cross. He hung there. He bled. He died. And it is sufficient. It is the only thing sufficient to bear and to cleanse and to forgive your and my sins. But it's interesting here, as Jesus returns to the right hand of the Father, he is, it's almost like his victory lap. There for, I've heard it described, that those 40 days was like his victory lap. And he's accomplished the task, but the scriptures tell us in Mark something really interesting about the ascension. It says that after, the, this is Mark's account of the ascension. Mark 16, 19, it says that after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven. That's another way to describe it. It says, and he sat down at the right hand of God. What, what a great phrase there. Jesus lives his life laboring for the kingdom, laboring to the point of giving his life for the sins of the world. And there's listen, there's nothing more rewarding then after laboring, sitting down. <laughs> and that's what Jesus does here. Do you get the picture here? He, he's, it's like he's completed the task. And just picture in your mind's eye, with, with the best of our imagination as possible, Jesus is, as he is parted into heaven, and this is important to point out, that Jesus doesn't, this is not space travel, okay? Jesus doesn't pass into the heavens, into the starry skies, into outer space. He tr- he's transferred. He is, you, you could say, he is teleported in a sense from the physical to the heavenly, into heaven, not the heavens, heaven. And, and in this moment, as he is as ascended up to the right hand of the Father, he is reunited. He's, he is once again returning to his Father. What a beautiful moment. Just imagine Jesus hearing, or maybe it wasn't, we we don't have any words recorded here of the father saying anything to the son. It might have been one of those moments where like the best thing to do in that moment was the father just to look at the son in approval and acceptance. And there Jesus sits down with the approval of his father, reunited to his father. Jesus completed the task that his father had given him. And he sits down. Now, you're wondering, okay, what, what, why is that important for me, the fact that Jesus sat down? Well, Hebrews actually expounds on this, and it compares Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews is comparing and contrasting the old way of relating to God, the old Levitical priestly system of the law, which is what we do to keep our right standing with God sacrifices and ordinances and law-keeping, all of that jazz, including the priestly system. That was the system of what we do to maintain our right standing with God. And the author of Hebrews is comparing, contrasting that with the new and better way of Jesus, which is what Jesus has done to secure our right standing with God big difference. And in Hebrews chapter 10, the author, which was likely Paul, who is writing this letter, he's contrasting the Old Testament priesthood with the New Testament priesthood. And here's what he says about Jesus um, and the Old Testament priesthood. He says this, he says, every priest, Old Testament, stands, see that word? Stands, ministering daily and offering repeatedly, repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. This is a picture of life without Jesus as your savior. There's always work to do. It's never enough. You might be able to sit down for a moment. Like I, I, right now, I'm kind of in that moment at my house with all the different projects that I've been doing. I actually had that moment yesterday where I completed uh, uprooting all the old landscaping in my house and there was just this moment where I got to sit down. I was watching my kids by the pool and that moment of rest was fleeting because it took two seconds for me to think about the next thing that I had to do. And so as rewarding as that rest is, as I sat down, I'm like an Old Testament priest. I'm always standing. There's always more work to do at my house, especially in quarantine. But this this, this, this is the same truth about those that don't know the Lord. This is the old system. There's always work to be done. There's always new sins to be sacrificed for. That's the Old Testament system. It says here again in Hebrews 10, 11, every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly, repeatedly the same sacrifices which ultimately can never take away sins. Now notice this. But this man, Jesus, after, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. From that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. There's a time coming where Jesus not only will be sitting on his throne, but he will be reclining on his throne with his feet upon the heads of his enemies. What poetic language to describe the coming victory, the inaugural and the coming victory of Jesus. It says, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You see, Jesus, he's seated on that throne. He's seated because there's no more work for him to do. And I want to encourage you and remind, remind you with what Ephesians, what Ephesians 2 says about you and I. Ephesians 2 says that God has raised us up together, and notice this, and he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Jesus. This is a passage where Paul is describing all that Christ has accomplished for us in Jesus and accomplishing what he has. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, and guess what? He wants us to sit down too. I love that phrase, he made us sit together. It sounds like getting my kids around the dinner table, you know? He made us sit. Sit down, please, you know, when we're out in public and the kids are standing on the booth jumping and the people behind us are getting like, their hair pulled, you know? Uh, but, like, that's the idea. And, and, and it's, it's, it's comedic, but it's true. I have such a tendency, I don't know about you, to, to still stand in my efforts. I have such a tendency to try to work and earn and achieve enough for God when God says, listen, I've done it all. Sit down. Rest. You've been seated with Jesus in those heavenly places. That's the first implication of this. Listen, Jesus Christ has been seated. You should take a seat too. Before you stand up and do something, you should sit down and recognize something. Jesus Christ has paid it all. He's finished the task. That's what the ascension signifies. He's ascends to the right hand of the Father, and he is seated there. Now, this encourages me um, with the hope that I can rest in what Jesus has done, but it also motivates me to want to live my life the same way. You know, you and I, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Just like Jesus, you have an earthly mission, and it's temporary. There's a limited amount of time, and there's even a limited amount of impact, but it's measured for you nonetheless. You were created in Christ for good works that God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in him. And when I see Jesus here seated at the right hand of the Father, I'm refreshed to know that he's done it all to save me. But I'm also encouraged to say, Lord, may I still, may I also, like Jesus, give my whole life to what you've called me to May I live to hear you one day say, well done, good and faithful servant. May I not just be someone who does the things I'm supposed to do, but may I do it like Jesus, who gave all of himself to the things that God called him to. And I I think in in this season that we're in, there's a lot of reprioritizing that God is maybe doing. He's shaken up our normal systems, maybe for us to think about, man, am I living, am I giving myself to the things that matter most? If I were to go home to be with the Lord tomorrow, today, only God knows that time where when I'll ascend uh, because of Jesus, I'll also get to ascend to, the, to, to, to God's own presence. And when that time comes, will I have given all of me to the things that matter most? What, what great encouragement for us. So that's what the ascension signifies first. The ascension signifies, so importantly, Uh, It marks the completion of Jesus' earthly mission. He is seated at the right hand of God. We should sit there too and give our our lives the same thing that he did. Secondly, the ascension of Jesus marked the activation. I want you to follow me here. The ascension of Jesus also marks the activation of Jesus' global ministry. As he is taken up to the right hand of the Father, you have the disciples looking longingly sadly at the loss in, in the moment there, there there's a the, the quarter hasn't sort of like dropped yet in the payphone of the disciples hearts right they haven't it hasn't clicked yet it it does after the angel speaks to them when they walk away and they go worship but there's a moment here where the disciples, it's almost like they've forgotten everything that Jesus has taught them, and all they're looking at is the loss of Jesus again. They've already lost him uh, through his, uh, in, in their life already, uh, a moment there with his crucifixion, the idea of losing him. He, he returns, and it's like, you know, it's one thing to lose something valuable. It hurts even worse when you find that valuable thing and lose it again, you know? It's like to lose it the second time, and that's almost what they're feeling here. Uh, this, this, this moment of, of looking at Jesus longingly, which is just so understood, even if they knew what was going to come about through his ascension, even if they knew what his ascension was going to activate in their lives, there's still this moment of them looking longingly at Jesus. I mean, just imagine that sight. Uh, it was jaw-dropping to watch the blue angels fly overhead. Imagine seeing Jesus parting from the physical into heaven, and they're looking longingly, and as they're doing that, some angels show up, and they say, what are you gazing at? This same Jesus, I love that phrase, this same Jesus, he he, he hasn't left you, this same Jesus, he's going to come, he's going to return, but they also knew that this same Jesus that was ascending also promised them that he was going to be with them always, right? Right? And that's what's going on here at the Ascension. This is one of the reasons why the Ascension is so significant. The disciples, they they end up learning this and they, they go back worshiping. They go back joyful, which if they didn't know something, you know, other than the fact that their friend just left into heaven, they wouldn't go away joyful and worshiping. They would go away sad. But they knew that the Ascension of Jesus needed to happen for all of who Jesus is to be released into all the world. Let me kind of unpack this a little bit. Um, there's an incredible account after Jesus is resurrected where he is visited by Mary. We looked at it on Easter Sunday, Mary Magdalene. And as she sees the resurrected Lord, she clings to him. Now, follow me here. She grabs him. And in John 20, there's this really interesting verse where Jesus says, do not cling to me. Notice this, for I have not yet, what? Ascended. Don't hold on to me. For I haven't ascended yet to my father, but go and tell my brethren and say to them, I am ascending. Isn't that interesting? That's what he wanted Mary to tell the disciples, that I'm ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. You see, uh, Mary and the disciples, they wanted Jesus with them in the physical presence that they've always had him. But Jesus said, no, no, that's, that's not the hope that I have here the hope of my resurrection is not that I'm now physically with you, but the hope of my resurrection is that I'm going to ascend. And if you let me ascend, what's going to happen is my relationship to the physical world is going to be different than it is right now. I mean, in this moment, in Jesus' physical presence, prior to his ascension, he is in one spot in space at one point in time. And they're holding on to him. They're like, we don't want to leave you. But when Jesus ascended, I want you to see this. I know know this might be a little heady, but follow me here. Ephesians 4 says that he who descended is also the one who ascended. Notice this. Far above the heavens, Ephesians 4.10. Why did he ascend? That he might fill all things. You see that? So again, when Jesus ascended, he's not space-traveling. He is actually changing his relationship to the universe. When Jesus entered the world, he came into the physical form and he was limited in one spot in space at one point in time. As he resurrects in that physical body, he's still there at one spot in space at one point in time. And Mary's like, no, we want to keep you. He goes, no, you got to let me go. You got to let me go. Why? Because if you hold on to me here, I'll be with you here. But if you let me ascend... My relationship to you and the universe will be different. You can be in the deepest, darkest dungeon and I'll be with you. If you hold on to me, you can have me right here, right now. But by Jesus ascending, he was able to fill all things. His relationship to the universe was changing. And as he ascended, the idea here was that he was, in a sense, releasing his presence into the whole world. This is beautiful, you know. Tim Keller, as he talks about the ascension, he says it so beautifully. He's like, you know, um, you wouldn't you don't furnish a you wouldn't furnish a house without without it being one day lived in. You furnish it for it to be lived in, or you don't prepare a meal for it not to be eaten. You prepare it to be eaten. In the same way, he also uses this illustration. It's like if you're going to, say, blow out some, some part of a mountain for a, a bridge or a road to go through, you don't build the bomb for it not to detonate. Well, think about all that Jesus did in his life and on the cross and through his resurrection. That was the, the preparation and the building of the bomb. The ascension, listen, was where all that Jesus did was detonated and activated into the world the release of his presence it it released all that Jesus was and all that Jesus did to even you and me Uh, so Jesus said Mary don't cling to me because I've got to be present in Andrew's life one day I've got to save him and rescue him it released his presence into the world but I want you to also remember that it released his power into the world Through Jesus' ascension came the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, remember, told his disciples in John 16, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I ascend. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper won't come to you. But if I depart, if I ascend, I will release my power into the world. And this is what Jesus was constantly doing. We're going to talk more about this next week. But as Jesus was going to depart, he was seeking to prepare his disciples for his departure by shifting their dependence upon the coming promise of his spirit. And this is, again, why the ascension of Jesus, uh, parting into heaven, leaving earth from the physical, coming now into heaven, the reason why it was so significant is because, again, it was the activation of his global ministry. It released His presence to everyone, everywhere, in any space, at any point in time. Jesus can say, "I am with you," but certainly He can say that because He is with us through the Holy Spirit, who Jesus um, ascended to send. Okay, so the Father was that uh, was the one who sent the Spirit as Jesus returned to the Father, um, and we see that there also in Acts as the Holy Spirit is sent, and uh, this is another reminder here of what the, the Holy Spirit actually means to us personally. Um, it's Ephesians 4, that verse that we looked at, which talks about Jesus ascending to fill all, but that same passage says that when he ascended, he gave gifts to men. He poured out his spirit. So, uh, important to recognize this. The first thing, again, the ascension of Jesus marked the completion of his earthly ministry. The ascension of Jesus, number two, marked the activation Sorry, the ascension of Jesus uh, marked the completion of his earthly mission. Secondly, the ascension of Jesus marked the activation of his global ministry. As he ascended, his presence was released into all the world, and his power, the power of the Spirit was released upon the church, poured out upon the church. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. And then thirdly, write this one down, the ascension of Jesus, we see this, it marked the exaltation of his glorious reign, you see, in, in Mark, when it tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, it's not just the Father here and there's Jesus you know, sitting on a curb next to, the, next to the Father at the right hand. No, that, that's poetic language to describe a place of honor and authority. Jesus here, Acts tells us, is seated on the throne of heaven. He is seated upon a throne that has uh, been described in Luke. Remember the promise that, that the angel gave to Mary, that you're going to give birth to a son, and he's going to sit upon the throne of his father, David. So now let's go back to kind of in our imagination. So imagine what's going on here. Jesus, um, Jesus told the disciples, I don't think I have the verse here, I wish I did, but in, in John 3, uh, Jesus told the disciples that... Uh, no man has ever ascended to the right hand of God. That's true. No human being has ever ascended to heaven without being like burned alive. You know? <laughs> like, no one. Because all who have, who have been born to this world have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the, the consequence of that is not ascending but descending. But here's Jesus in his ascension, he is the first man to ascend. And you read in Psalm 24 this angelic song that says, who is this king of glory? Who is this king of glory showing up to the door of heaven? And Jesus responds in that song and he says, the Lord, mighty in battle, lift up your head, O you gates, that the king of glory may come in. Just imagine this. Jesus ascends and uh, one of my um, When I first got saved, one of my favorite preachers to to listen to was a guy named Paul Washer, who's just real, um, he'll make you question your salvation uh, every single moment, and uh, just really passionate and and very passionate about the holiness of God. He describes Jesus ascending to the right hand of God and sitting down upon the throne without even asking for permission, like taking the throne that was rightfully his. And so we understand that the ascension, it marks this exaltation of Jesus' glorious reign, He's seated, finished the job, he sat down. He's able to now change his relationship to the universe by ascending and release. Just as he came into the world, he comes out of the world and releases his presence into the world, and his ministry, and his spirit, and his power into the world. And as he's seated there at the right hand of God, he's in that place of honor. And Philippians tells us that he is being here exalted, exalted. This is how it works in the kingdom of God. Exaltation is the product of humiliation. And you could get it one way or another. There's really two options in life, right? You can either exalt yourself and then be humbled, or you can humble yourself before God and let Him lift you up. And Jesus is the model of that. And by the way, Jesus um, he, he didn't have it upon himself. He didn't have to humble himself. He chose to humble himself. That's the important thing about humility. Humility isn't a feeling. Humility is a choice, isn't it? And this is what we see. It says in Philippians 2 that uh, Paul says, For us, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God, on the throne of God from eternity past, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but it says, He made himself of no reputation. He came in the form of a servant, and taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance of a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of, of the cross. Now notice this, therefore, God has highly exalted him, and given him the name and the throne, which is above every name and every throne, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, Paul says here in Philippians 2 that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess and that's still true. There's coming a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. In light of that, you should bow your knee. (laughs) I should confess the glory of Jesus because he is the only king forever. He is the king of kings, he is the lord of lords. He has humbled himself to pay for our sin. And here at the ascension, he is exalted on the throne of God. This throne is higher. Colossians tells us it's above every other throne. Uh, Every throne of government, it's, it's paper mache, it's cotton candy. His throne is higher than any threat we may face. It's it's higher than the throne even of Satan. Do you know Satan has a throne? He's the prince of this world that throne has no match to the throne of Jesus. He told his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. My throne is higher than the coronavirus. My throne is higher than the economic situation you're facing. Where Jesus is seated in that place of authority, it supersedes anything we come against. And here's the great news for us about this. It's one thing to just have that as information and go, yet Jesus is the king forever. But in Hebrews, the Bible describes this throne as being a place that we can now approach. And there's a lot of debate about this, but just practically speaking, think about the fact, this is where Jesus presently is. Jesus is God and he's omnipresent, so he can reside in our hearts as well as upon his throne. But this is the spatial language, maybe for us to understand, I don't know, but this is the spatial language that scripture gives us for us to understand where, what Jesus is doing right now. Like, if you ever wonder that, like we know Jesus came, he did a lot on this earth, like what is Jesus doing right now? Well, every time you see Jesus In the New Testament, uh, following his ascension, uh, the vast majority of the time that you see Jesus, you see him seated right there on his throne. It's where he is. The Spirit of God is the one through which Jesus is working in the world, and Jesus is there seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on things above where Christ is, Colossians 3, seated at the right hand of God. Uh, gloriously enthroned, and Hebrews tells us that we can approach that throne. Uh, Here's what what the author of Hebrews says. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest, this is ascension language, look, who has passed through the heavens, that's ascension language, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest, Who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hold on to that. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in this time of need. Here's here's what's so awesome. You ready for this? This king upon his throne is our priest. That's what the author is saying here. He's a priestly king. He's a kingly priest. He has passed through the heavens... And though we deserve to simply bow our faces, and we ought to, before the glory of his reign, it's a throne of grace that says, come near. And upon that throne, if you are in Christ, listen, you have a priest who is sitting there, seated there, as a mediator between you and I and God. He's there as our, we sang it earlier, as our defender, as our advocate, Every time Satan brings an accusation against us and tries to bring it to the Father, Jesus is in the ear of the Father saying, I paid for that sin. If anyone sins, 1 John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's there, the Bible says, interceding and even praying for us at the right hand of the Father. And he's there, available to us. Boldly I approach your throne. This throne, listen, it's a throne of grace. Now, if you are not in Christ, I want you to understand that this is also a throne of glory. And you ought to tremble before this holy God. In fact, that is the prerequisite to coming before this God for help, is to recognize that you desperately need his grace. That your sin has separated you from him. But what you see as you see that line is you also see a lamb who sacrificed himself for your sin who invites you to come near to be saved. And us too, in the moments that we're in, may we go before this throne. and Ultimately, we do so being reminded of this last and final point as we close, that this ascension, this moment of Jesus taking the seat that was his at the right hand of God, it marked the expectation of his soon return. Uh, this, This is what's such an important part of the narrative we read there in Acts, Remember, as the disciples are gazing into heaven, the angels that stood by them said, why do you stand gazing this, verse 11, this same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven, notice it, will so come in like manner as you saw him go. This same Jesus. And that's what we have here as a promise for us, even in the moment that we're in right now. We know that as Jesus sat down on that throne, um, what it marked was a, a, a new expectation. Uh, forever, what Israel wrestled with was the expectation of the first coming, right? Trusting that the Messiah would come, trusting that he would do all that the prophecies declared. And guess what? He came. And just as sure we are of his first coming, we can have within us the same expectation of his second coming, I imagine here as the the angels are saying, listen, he's going to come back. It's almost like the countdown clock started, right? The final countdown. Maybe they started singing that. I don't know. But think about this. This promise of his return, it provided the full context for the disciples in their lives and in their ministry. No matter what they would face, They didn't just have behind them the fact that Jesus came. And that was a lot. In fact, that was enough, right? Jesus came. And he paid for their sins and he was with them. But they were able to go through what they went through because they had a hopeful future. They knew that whatever was coming against them, one day Jesus would come against it. And that's why they lived the way that they lived. They knew. And they lived with this expectation that Jesus was going to come. And if they lived with that expectation 2,000 years ago, I'd say we're overdue for his return today, right? And we should and we ought to live in that same expectation. This should cause us to do two things. Number one, it should cause us to live with holy fear. Knowing that Jesus is going to return in grace. That's the good news. He's not coming to judge those that belong to him, right? He's coming to embrace and love and cover them with his love. That's what First Peter says, rest your hope fully on the grace that's coming through Jesus. But it should motivate us to live with holy fear, to live in light of his return. When Jesus returns, how will he find me? What will I be doing? What kind of a servant will I be when my master returns? This also causes me to live with audacious, radical, bold hope. If your story hasn't ended, it's not the end of the story. There's more to come. Jesus is the one who's more to come. He's going to return, and there's a day coming when he will come. Any hour, any moment, no man knows the day nor the hour, but we are certain that he will, and it will be the end of sin and death. It will be the end of all disease. It will be the end of all quarantining. You get the opposite of that in heaven. There's no social distancing in heaven. There's close proximity and relationship to the throne of God, worshiping the Son of God. Tim Keller says, gave up his life for us so that one day Jesus can return to end evil and and sin in this world without ending us. And, And that's the hope we have through this Jesus who's ascended. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.